Now turn again with me tonight to the book of Hebrews. We're turning to Hebrews chapter 4. This was not the text that I started off with in the study this week, but this is the text that I ended up with. Hebrews chapter 4. And I've given it a title. Uh, it's a pretty general one, but I think it sums it up. It's finding rest in a restless world. Finding rest in a restless world. Undoubtedly, this present age that you and I live in, it's one of the most restless in living memory. Multitudes are they're bored. They're dissatisfied with their lives. And as a result of that, they're seeking out the thrills and the spills of our corrupt and sinful society. And there are many reasons because of that, but there's an underlying reason. And the underlying reason is that sin has made us restless. It is sin that has made us restless. Since the day in the Garden of Eden when Satan deceived our first parents, Adam and Eve, he made them dissatisfied with their God-given providential lot. Humanity has always been looking for more than it already has. God gave to Adam and Eve everything. Everything, health, wealth, a secure environment, fellowship with him, uninterrupted, unimpeded. He gave to them everything except one thing. And he said to them, they could eat of the fruit of every other tree in the Garden of Eden, but of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, God put a bar on it. This was his law. They were not to eat of it. But the devil persuaded them the thing that God said they shouldn't have was the thing that they needed most. And this is not always the way. And he planted a desire in their heart for it. Eve was drawn into that web of deceit that Satan spun and she was quickly drawn into the very centre of it and she looked at the fruit and then she had a desire for the fruit and then she reached out her hand and she took the fruit. She fell right for it and she gave it to Adam. The Bible doesn't say that Adam was deceived. Adam knowingly, he willingly, he deliberately partook of the sin and thus our first parents fail from their original state of righteousness. Now from Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to where you and I are tonight. And until the, the trumpet sounds and Jesus comes back. The offspring of Adam all has a restless gene within them. We were all born with that restless sinful spirit. And the human race from that day to this day to that day has failed to overcome such restlessness that caused the expulsion of our first parents. This is shown to us many places in the scriptures. I'll just give you one scripture and I'll read it out to you. The book of Ecclesiastes, this wise old man at the end of life, he's looking back on the journey of life and this is what he says, Ecclesiastes 1 and 8, all things are full of labour. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. For what hath man of all his labour and of the vexation of his heart, wherein he hath laboured under the sun? For all his days are sorrows, his travail grief, yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. Sin has made us restless. The heart is not satisfied. Even in the night hours, there is no rest. 
There's a restlessness. We're always looking for more than God has given to us. Ever ready, ever ready to try what the devil puts in front of us. Now sometimes as older people, we look at the youth growing up and we say this is what the youth do. But brethren and sisters, it's what the older people do as well. The devil knows how to bait. And he knows how to put the bait and put us in front of souls and for souls to be drawn in by that bait. The Apostle Paul, in taking up this theme and writing to the Hebrew Christians, he knew that there was a restlessness amongst those that had left Judaism and had avowed their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There was a restlessness. Some of them wanted to go back to the legalism of the law. Why is it there's such a legalistic spirit in all of our hearts? But they wanted to go back to legalism. They wanted to be able to say that they contributed to their salvation and to their standing before Almighty God. And so in order to stir them up, to remove them from that place, Paul uh, stirred them up to enter into the rest that God had provided for them. That spiritual rest. And in order to do so, he spoke of the wilderness generation which had uh, been stopped from entering into their rest because of disobedience. The context of Hebrews chapter 4, of course, is Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 11, we read, so I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The rest which was spoken of here is a quotation from Psalm 95 from whence we read this evening. And it was a reference to the promised land. The promised land of Canaan. That promised land it typified the rest of God. The place where God would plant his people. The place where God would put his name. The place where his people would learn to worship him. And where his name would be uplifted before the nations. But a generation fell in the wilderness. And didn't enter into that rest. And didn't enter into that land. Why? Why? Because of their restlessness. Because of their sin of unbelief. Uh, and all of this ought to stir our souls. Jesus said you will find rest for your souls. That's a lovely expression that the Saviour used in Matthew 11 and verse 29. He said I'm meek and lowly in heart. And if you take my yoke and learn of me. Ye, you shall find rest for your souls. There is rest for the restlessness. There's peace to be had tonight. There's rest for the soul tonight. If you feel that restlessness that is personified in the world, the, the word of God presents you something totally different tonight. It's rest in Christ. There's a lovely hymn. I've often quoted it to you. There is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God. A place where sin cannot molest near to the heart of God. Oh, Jesus, blessed Redeemer, Sent from the heart of God, hold us who wait before thee, near to the heart of God. I want to speak to you tonight about this place of quiet rest, near to the heart of God. 
And I want you to, despite all the restlessness that swirls round about you in this ungodly world that we live in, to know that you can rest your soul upon the Lord Jesus Christ tonight. And you can find rest for the restless spirit in him and in him alone. I want you to turn with me then to Hebrews chapter 4 because this is the whole theme of these opening verses that we have been reading about. And in verse 1, a promise is given of entering into that rest. Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Paul had a great fear. They had heard about the rest and he had a great fear from some had even professed to be followers of the Lamb. But he had a great fear that some of them would fall short and not enter in. Canaan, of course, was the literal promised land. It was the land that God gave to Abraham and his descendants in Genesis chapter 15, verse 15 to 21. And this, according to number 34, was their inheritance. God brought the children of Israel up out of that Egyptian slavery so that they might possess their inheritance. He dispossessed others so that they might possess it. And this promised land was the place of blessing. It was the rest for the people of God. After 400 years of slavery, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they needed rest. And God was going to bring them to this land. The land of Canaan also typified the spiritual and eternal rest, of course, that belongs to the spiritual seed of Abraham. Paul said in verse 2 that this gospel promise was preached unto those who refused to enter in as well as unto you. Now that's amazing. He's talking to the Hebrew believers of his own day of the dispersion. He's talking to them. He said, you've heard the gospel, the same gospel that was preached to those that were in the wilderness. There are those today who say there's different gospels and they're divided up into seven sects segments etc but there's only one gospel and there's only one message and the message that Paul said these Hebrew believers heard the same ones heard in the wilderness all of those years previously and he said he feared for them lest they come near but fall short and you know every gospel preacher every gospel minister has that same fear of those who sit under the sound of the gospel week on week on in their own congregations you have heard the gospel preached you have had opportunity after opportunity you have heard what others will never hear but there's a danger that you fall short and you don't enter in he quotes psalm 95 verse 8 harden not your heart as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. I think that you have many things to fear in life, but I think the thing that we must fear most is our own sinful hard hearts. A conscience that is seared. When God no longer touches, when God's word no longer touches you, rebukes you, speaks to you, that is a time of great of great trepidation. It's a time of great danger in anybody's life. The wilderness generation, going back to uh, the Exodus wanderings and going through the wilderness, they received direct revelation from God. That's a wonder, isn't it? 
God spoke to them. God with his finger wrote the law, gave it in the tables of stone and gave it to Moses and it was in the tabernacle. They carried that wherever they went throughout the wilderness. But that same message came to the Hebrews, Paul said, indirectly through the word of God. It's the same message. It's the same message, just delivered in a different age. And like them, what gospel promises have been given? Time and time again, mercy sent from God. The word in this opening verse, it means gospeled. Gospeled. And you, in and alone, I can look every one of you in the face and say the same thing. You have been gospeled as no other people have ever been gospeled and had the gospel preached to them. All of you have grown up with the gospel. What privileges. I looked up in the past week how many Christians there are in the population of Gaza. Just a little strip of land. Not very big at all. According to what I read in the internet, there are some 1,200 Christians according to the eye of the world. But when you decipher that all down, it doesn't even tell you half the picture. Because amongst evangelical Christians, it is estimated that there are only 200 evangelical Christians in Gaza. And they belong to the Gaza Baptist Church. 200 and there are over 2 million Muslims live in Gaza. Now can you tell me how often they have heard? You know it's not enough to merely hear. But you have to hear with faith. It is only those who hear and exercise faith are those that will enter in. The wilderness generation, they heard direct from God. Direct from God. They heard the voice. They were afraid when they heard the voice. Thus Moses was their inter intermediary. He was their mediator. They heard direct from God. But they didn't believe. They didn't exercise faith. And the whole generation didn't enter in. They made a choice. You're called to believe the message of the gospel. You're called to put faith in what you hear. You're called to take seriously the word that you hear, not in a flippant, uh, superficial manner, but you're called to believe it and receive it as from God himself, because you have been gospeled. And take the warning to flee seriously. When I heard in the past week, on the news media that the Israelis had dropped all of those leaflets in northern Gaza and told them to flee. I thought, I, I, those people will not flee. They will listen to Hamas. They, they will not move out and there will be massive bloodshed. But thousands of them have fled. Hundreds of thousands of them have fled. Because they do believe they do believe that this week the Israelis are going to strike northern Gaza and if they're in that area where the Israelis come over the border, their life will be in danger. 
But how many who sit in gospel pews tonight right across our land for years, they've heard the warnings of the wrath of God, they've heard the warnings of judgment to come, and they haven't fled. And the hour is fast approaching. The hour is fast approaching when wrath will fall. The, the, the Bible tells us in verse 12 about the word of God that it's like that sharp two-edged sword. The preached word is very powerful. It can pierce even the very thoughts and intents of the heart. There's a promise for those who will believe. Believe the message of repent. Believe the message of faith. If they enter in, they will know that rest. Secondly, consider with me the punishment of those who do not believe. So there is the countryside to it. Those who do believe enter in. Those who do not believe. Let's look down all of these verses. Verse 2b, it says, Not being mixed with faith in them that heard it, they didn't enter in. We look at verse 3, the opening part. For we which have believed do enter into the rest, as he said, I have sworn in my wrath if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the earth. And then verse 11, let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. The punishment simple. The punishment of unbelief is being barred from God's presence for all of eternity to come, being barred from the presence of God. We live in a world where God's presence surrounds everyone. So as Reformed Christians, we believe in common grace. Every one of us are recipients of common grace every day. But you imagine when God takes away that grace, when God takes away the restraints, when God withdraws his presence, what happens? We fall into that that bottomless pit that is spoken of in the book of Revelation. And those who do not believe they are shut out from the presence of God for all, all of God's eternity. Unbelief ultimately is the sin that damns the soul in hell. Unbelief, what is it? Well, it's the rejection of the message of the Bible. It's a denial of what you are, it's, it's living in denial. There are so many living in denial in this land that we live in who have been cradled, nurtured in the gospel. They deny that they were born in sin and shape and in iniquity. They deny that they cannot save themselves. They deny that there's only one way of God's grace and God's mercy as is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can live in denial all the rest of your day, but you'll not enter in to stir them up. Paul exhorted them, verse 1, to fear the consequences of missing the promise. Those who missed the promises in Numbers 14 had to face the consequences. And if you miss the promise, you will have to face the consequence. You'll fall short, you'll not enter in. Verse 11, he said, not only fear it, but in verse 11 he said, labor to enter into that rest. Labor, the word that is used here is the equivalent to eagerly and perseveringly seek to enter in. Keep on knocking. Keep on seeking. Keep on striving until you know that you've entered in. Those who had professed faith 
We're not to stop seeking and persevering. I think Paul himself is the greatest illustration of this. I was looking up those verses in Philippians chapter 3. And with every part of his soul, he's straining toward the objective of entering in and claiming the prize. He said in Philippians 3 verse 12, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which I also am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Forgetting those things that are behind and stretching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. There's never, going to be de- there's never going to be a day when you and I will sit still in the pilgrimage and say we'll go no further. Every day we have to make progress. Every hour we have to go forward. On the contrary side, those who do not eagerly and perseveringly seek to enter in, they're lost. A whole generation invited and they refuse to come. And thus they were shut out. Very often across this land, when I was a boy growing up, Roman Catholic people would have put on their condolences cards, R.I.P. It's a Latin phrase. It simply means rest in peace. Now Protestants do it too, because Protestantism has left its, its biblical moorings. Now the spiritual reality is something very different. If you die in unbelief, you'll never enter into rest at the end of the journey. There is no rest, eternal rest, for those that have rejected the gospel of Christ and have died with unbelief in their heart. We're shut out. We've fallen short. And I just want you to stop for a moment and ponder what your unbelief is costing you. Thirdly, this passage teaches us about God's permanent rest. There's an encouragement for us to believe here that there, verse 9 tells us, there remaineth a rest to the people of God. There remaineth a rest to the people of God. The Bible teaches us about God's rest as something which he wants his people to enjoy. It's not that God's withholding it from us. He wants you to enter into the experience of it. Where the troubled soul is, he wants you to know his peace. Where the restlessness is, he wants you to know the rest. In verse 4, the illustration is given about God who rested on the seventh day after a six days of creation. Now there's a good practical lesson here for the journey of life. That we start our week's work after resting. You start the week's work after resting. We go to work rested. If you go to work exhausted, you know what's going to happen. But you go to work rested. And that's the biblical principle. The Sabbath rest, however, did not exhaust the meaning of the word. Because many years afterwards, God spoke of a rest. Which he wanted Israel to experience by that type of the land of Canaan. Remember when Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land. Joshua was their greatest general. The military in Israel to this day still hold Joshua, the biblical Joshua, up as the very epitome of the greatest military strategist of his day and of his age. And we read here in verse 8, verse 8, For if Jesus had, 
had given them rest. Now the word for Jesus in verse 8 is also the word for Joshua. So the meaning is if, if Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterwards have spoken of another day? Uh, and verse 9 reminds us that there's another rest. There's another day that remaineth for the people of God. This is a Sabbath rest. We're glad of the Sabbath. And we do believe in the Sabbath. And it's just a, a foretaste of the eternal Sabbath which is to come. There are people today and they say they're Christians. And Do they keep the Sabbath? No. They would deny the very existence of the Sabbath day. I just wonder where they're going to in God's eternity because God's eternity is a Sabbath. It's an eternal Sabbath. It's a day, uh, it's an eternal Sabbath of, of spiritual rest. There will be permanent rest one day for the children of God from all the trials and, and the, the troubles of this world. It's called the saints' eternal rest. For the Christian, when the battle is over, and we all have to face that final battle with death, and when we leave this scene of time, there is actually an eternal resting place near to the heart of God for every believer. What a place heaven must be. Heaven is depicted in many different ways. It's not a place of inactivity. It doesn't mean in heaven you're just as it were going to be lying around doing nothing. We're servants. We serve God here. We'll serve the Lord in heaven. But it's one of perfect rest for the soul. There will never be a troubled thought. There will never be a troubled incident. There will be nothing that will ever cause unrest to your soul or mine in heaven. We read in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and to you who are troubled, rest with us. When Jesus comes back, there's going to be rest. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven. We read in Revelation 14 and 13 that those who die in the Lord, they rest from their labours and their works do follow them. What a place heaven is. A place of eternal rest for the saints of God. But the contrast could not be any more stark in verse 11 of chapter 14 of the book of Revelation about those who die in unbelief. They have no rest day or night because the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. What a choice. As we close tonight, let's think just for a little moment about the person of Christ in whom such rest is found. Paul closed this great chapter, verse 14 to 16, and he closed it out by speaking of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has passed into the heavens, our great high priest. Rest is not a bolt-on to salvation. You get saved, then you get rest. Rest is in Christ. He's the rest. Faith in Christ is a saving grace. The little catechism says that we've quoted so often to you. That we receive him and rest on him alone for salvation. So we receive him. That's exercising faith. And then we just rest on him. We, we venture our all upon him for salvation. I was reading again about John Payton. When he was translating the Bible 
into the Awana language. He couldn't find an equivalent for the word to believe. That's an important theological word. So it took a long time for him to find an equivalent that the people on the island would understand. So one day as he was in a study chair, one of the ladies was passing by and he asked her, well, what am I doing? And she said, you're sitting down. So then he lifted up his legs and he rested his feet on the chair bar of the, of the chair. His wife mustn't have been there that day. So he lifted his legs up on the, the bar of the chair and leaning back he said, now what am I doing? And the lady simply replied, you're leaning holy. You're leaning holy. And Peyton was just so elated. He'd found the meaning of his word. The meaning of true faith is just to lean on Jesus holy. And if you lean on Jesus holy, you'll enter into God's eternal rest. Multitudes of those cannibals of the New Hebride Islands, they were converted through John Peyton's use of that word. They, they just saw it and they understood it so well. And they came to lean holy, unreservedly on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation alone. By faith, we receive and we rest upon him alone for salvation. It's not what these hands can do, can save this guilty soul. There's nothing these hands or your hands could do to save your soul. It's what he has already done. And it's a gift that he gives to those who will come and trust him and believe on him. Dear Christian tonight, just rest again upon him. Just put your all upon him again tonight. And those that are in the meeting and you're not converted, I urge you tonight, don't fall short. You've been gospeled. Hebrews 4 and verse 1. You've heard the message. But by faith you need to believe it and receive it in order to enter in. On thee my heart is resting. Ah, this is rest indeed. Second verse goes, My guilt is great but greater, the mercy thou doth give. Thyself a spotless offering has died that I should live. With thee my soul unfettered has risen from the dust. Thy blood is all my treasure. Thy word is all my trust.